If this is your first time to RUF, we're really glad that you're here. Uh, just so you know, RUF is, this is not a place where we pretend to have it all together, uh, like we have everything figured out. We actually believe that, that the Bible teaches that Christians are people who admit that they need help. Christians are people who admit that they need saving because they're sinful. And a lot of times I think people have been turned off about Christianity because we don't act that way. Christians can act like they have it all together, that they're put together and perfect, and you have to be like this in order for God to, to love you. But that is, that is not good news, and it's not what the Bible is about. What the Bible is about is a person named Jesus, and all of the scriptures whisper his name, and our need for him, and his willingness to give us his grace. And so even as we look at the, the passage that we're going to look at tonight, is, uh, it's a hard one. We're preaching through the book of Revelation, and I know I've even been talking to some of you, and you've been like, I've been waiting for it to get weird. Oh, welcome to the night it gets weird. Okay. And I say that kind of kidding, but also kind of like, I've, just to tell you, this is a, a text, I spent a lot of time studying this this past week, and it's hard. But I think there's some, God has given it to us for a reason. Revelation 1 tells us that those who will read this, this scripture out loud will be blessed. That God actually will bless us by studying this and reading this, even though, even though it's difficult. And, and by the way, this passage has been used in some really manipulative ways. I mean, I don't know if you've been watching Waco, that TV show about David Koresh. Well, we watched the first episode the other night. It's crazy. But his, this guy who started a cult in Waco back in the 90s used this passage that we're reading to start his cult. So this passage has been used in abusive ways, and, uh, but it's also, I say that to say that is not what it's about, and it's not what it's for. God's given it to us because he loves us, and he wants us to know him more deeply. So to frame this, before I read it, I want you to think about a guy that I grew up knowing when I was a kid. So I grew up in a really small town in Alabama called Tuscumbia. We're not known for much except for the birthplace of Helen Keller, and we're really proud of that. And I've heard all the Helen Keller jokes, so don't even try. But Helen Keller uh, was from Tuscumbia, but also a man named Johnny Hampton was from Tuscumbia. And Mr. Hampton was famous in our, our little town because he was a war, World War II veteran and also a survivor of a Nazi prison camp, a work camp. And Mr. Hampton was just this dear man who, he was like the guy that you would see if you were a kid in church, you always had a pocket full of candy, but not in a creepy way, like in a nice way. And he would, he would see you and he'd pull out his pocket full of candy and he'd, it'd be full of butterscotch, which you would avoid if you were a kid, and then the cinnamon discs or peppermints, which you would grab instantly. And he was just this sweet man and he really loved Jesus. And he would sing in the choir and everyone knew Mr. Hampton because he loved Jesus, but he also, he had come home from this Nazi war camp 95 pounds when World War II ended and had seen and endured things that were unimaginable. And when I've, I've thought about Mr. Hampton while I've been looking at this passage, because I can't, I can imagine it would be very easy for him to see the things that he saw 
and to get bitter about that and to be angry about that and to wonder, God, what are you doing? Do you even exist? Do you even care? Especially even for someone like Mr. Hampton who professed to believe in Jesus and thinks that Jesus has won the battle over sin and death, and then he's confronted with a concentration camp and the things that go on there. And that, the rub of that is, is that it, this, this is what makes believing in, in a God hard sometimes. Like if God is real and he, and he exists and he's loving, why are all these bad things happening? And the book of Revelation is written to Christians living in the first century and they're dealing with the same question because they're, they believe that Jesus has risen from the dead, he's defeated death, that he's seated at the right hand of his father and that he's ruling over everything. And yet Rome is powerful. And Rome is oppressing them. So much so that they're being fed to lions for believing in Christ. They're being burned at the stake for professing to believe in Jesus. And so surely they're thinking the same question that I would imagine Mr. Hampton thought, which is, God, why are things hard still? I thought, you, I thought you've done something about this. And so the, the passage that we're about to look at is we're going to see what God does about it. And I've, I've said this a couple times before, but just to reiterate, if this is your first time, the book of Revelation, it, it re- refers to tons of Old Testament stories. And we're going to get some of that again today. So when you hear these images that sound like kind of weird or outlandish, this isn't like, we're not supposed to think, okay, so is the first horseman representative of Syria? And is the second horseman representative of tanks? Or like, like this isn't written to, to try to find like what's the corresponding thing. It's, it's, think of it almost like an impressionist painting. My campus minister from, uh, from Vanderbilt used to tell me this. He, that if you go to an impressionist painting, you, you wouldn't look at a painting of hay bales and, and ask. The wrong question is, now are those hay bales eight feet tall or are they eight and a half feet tall? You're asking the wrong question if that's what you're looking at an Impressionist painting, trying to, to get to the very minutiae detail. It's supposed to leave an impression on you. And that's what the book of Revelation is supposed to do, and that's what this passage is supposed to do. Is John, who's writing this, is taking images. He's being shown images, and they're, they're true and they're helpful, but they're true in the sense that they are being used to deliver a message for us to to hear, and they're using images and impressions to do that. So, with that said, let's look at Revelation 6, and this is a longer passage, but I kind of had to do, you just can't break this up. And this is what happens when the lamb who was slain that we saw last week begins opening the seals that are on this scroll. And we talked about last week that this scroll represents God's plan for the world, God's answer to Why are things so messed up? And the lamb begins opening the seals to the scroll. And here we go. Revelation 6. 
Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red, its rider permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And behold, I looked and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider Its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given each a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll and, is being, and that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? When the, and this is chapter 8 now. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, would you help those who listen and the one who speaks now to understand and to know you more deeply? Lord, I have repent of my humanness and my inability to understand all of this. And so I pray that uh, it would not harm anyone, but that these uh, that this text and what we study tonight would would Help us see more of your grace and more of your love. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, so this is quite the passage. Uh, Saddle up, there's going to be a couple more like this in the next few weeks. I want to just look at two main points tonight, okay? First, God's purposes, and second, his promises, okay? So his purposes and his promise. So first, God's purposes. Okay, so the first, these seven seals get open, and the first four of them have a lot of similarities. There's the, the living creatures say come when they're opened. And also, they all come with a rider, someone who's riding on a horse. And you may have heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Like we, You just read about them. You just met them. That's these guys that we just looked at. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. And it's derived from um, four horsemen in the book, an Old Testament prophecy um, from Zechariah 6. And they, fairly, they pretty clearly represent four blights on humanity, four results of our evil, four ways that we suffer, and it's this. You've got the rider on the white horse, and a white horse is something that, that in, in Rome, it was, a, it was a horse for battle that a conquering hero would ride on. So you've got one rider who represents conquest, and then secondly, and much more clearly, the, the next rider represents war. And the third, hunger. And the fourth, death. So you've got these four riders, and they're bringing into the world conquest, war, hunger, and death. And this isn't something to read as a future thing that's going to happen one day, someday. Because the lamb has already been slain and he is on his throne. And this is, we're reading what happens between that time and when Jesus comes again, as we'll see later in the book of Revelation. But if you look around our world, is our world filled with nations conquering one another and going to war and people dying from hunger and sickness and death? Absolutely. See, what Revelation does is it helps us to see things for the way that it's... John is trying to help us to see things for the way that they really are. The word apocalypsis, where you hear that root apocalypse, that's, that's the word that we're translating as revelation. Apocalypsis is the Greek word. It literally means to be unveiled or revealed. So what John is doing is he's revealing to us what does sin and suffering actually look like? What, is, what does calamity look like? And I want you to note something. Look at verses 2, verse 4, verse 8. Each time these writers come in, there's something interesting that happens that's said about them. Verse 2, a crown is given. So he's, this, this first writer is given authority. And then look at verse 4. The writer is permitted to take peace from the earth. Once again, given authority. And then look at verse 8. The writer whose name is death is given authority. And this begs a question. And the question is, who is it who's giving the authority? See what I'm saying? Somebody is giving authority 
to these ones who are going to wreak havoc in the world. And it's, it's the Lamb. It's God in this story who is granting authority. And now you might be saying, okay, hit the brakes. Because I didn't, like, are you, we, 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 can, we kind of think of it as, we can think of this as two ways. Like, so does God, like, permit evil and just kind of allow it, but, like, he uses it differently? Or does he, does he grant it authority to go and do what it, what it wishes? And does he decree it? And I've got to say, this is, this is hard. I've wrestled with this. But what I think this is bearing out and what Scripture bears out is that it's the latter. That, that God, whatever happens, God, happens because of God's decree. That he's not in heaven wringing his hands wondering, like, I wonder what's going to happen. I hope things don't get too out of control. I can't control it. It's God is, who is the one who gives authority. He isn't evil. I'm not, I want to be clear, and this is, I know that I'm walking a line here, and I'm sure I'm, I welcome any questions after this. This is a hard text. He isn't evil, but he does control it. And I want you to know that that is, that is actually reason for you to have hope. Think about this. Imagine you're a kid and you walk into a room with your parent and all of a sudden another adult appears with a large needle and comes to you and sticks you with the needle and you look at your parent and your parent's like, I don't know who that is or what they're doing. How would you feel? (laughs) Now imagine you're the same, now, now imagine you're with your parent and the same situation happens and Somebody comes with a needle, it's adult, they stick you with it, and you look at your parent, and they're, they're like, this is a doctor, and I've told them to do it, and I love you. Which would you choose? I'm like, duh, that's like such an obvious question. But like, <laughs> I choose the person I don't know sticking me with a needle. Uh, no. The fact that Think of, in, in both of those scenarios, you have pain coming into the world, into this little kid's world. Pain that really can't be fully explained, and the reasons for why it's happening can't be fully explained. I mean, when we take our little baby, Betsy, to the doctor to stick her with a needle so she can be immunized. Sorry, we immunize our kids. I know that that's like really controversial for some of you, but we don't want our kids to get smallpox. Okay, sorry. Um, but like, maybe that's not controversial. Live in Austin and like raise kids for a little bit and like meet the crunchy Austin granola f- friends that you have and like prepare to be shamed by them for immunizing your kids. Sorry, this is a whole another tangent. But like, Betsy, we can't explain to her fully why this is happening. She just has to trust that we love her and we want what's best for her. But she can take great hope that we know who that person is who's doing that to her. And that person isn't going to do anything that we don't allow to happen, that we don't decree to happen. 
that's the parent you want. And that's the parent that's being depicted here. That God is not out of control with all of these things, with death and hunger and brokenness that's coming into the world. He is the one granting its authority. So what do these calamities do? I think, that, I think they function to do a couple things, okay? One, they reveal the hopelessness of the world. They re- War and suffering and sickness and death and hunger, it reveals that this w- world does not have what you ultimately need. We need, a, we need something to save us. There is no eternal hope in this world. There is no hope to avoid death in this world. These calamities are showing that. It reveals the hopelessness of the world. And the thing, the, the, the thing is, like, what, in my heart of hearts, like, I kind of want my life to look like a J. Crew magazine. You know, like the J. Crew magazine, even like the J. Crew kids, you know, they're just like so, they're like in canoes and they're dressed great and they're like, they're clean and everyone's just having a nice time. And that's kind of like, I don't know. Maybe that's not. That's like the widest example ever. Okay, like the J. Crew magazine. Maybe you. Maybe your dream is something different than that. But like, we we have these things that we think of. Like, man, I just kind of want a cushiony, nice, suburban existence. And the thing is, what what we want that thing like that that we want it might actually be the very worst thing for you. To to never taste the brokenness of the world. Because if you don't, you could end up just building your house on sand that is one day going to get washed away. C.S. Lewis describes it this way. And this is uh, in, from the Screw Tape Letters. And in the Screw Tape Letters, it's one demon counseling another demon how to tempt a person. And he says this, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Comfortable. Just make them comfortable. That's the safest road to get your person where you want them to go, says the demon. So it reveals the hopelessness of this world. It also reveals our sin for the monstrosity that it is. Because what our sin does is it disintegrates us. With God, we are made to be integrated in, in relation with him and with one another. Made for relationship and to be integrated with one another. But do you see how all these four things, this war, sickness, poverty, death, all of those things serve to split us apart. The first two seals, conquest and war, how people tragically misuse their power to hurt one another and gain power and advantage over the weak. The third one, is the imagery here is stunning. Did you see what the voice said in the third one? Look, I think it's verse, uh, verse 5. Um, and, uh, no, 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 I'm sorry, verse 6. 
this voice comes from um, the living creature describing this horse, and it says, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. What's being described here, a quart of wheat, a denarius is like, a, uh, that's a day's wage. A quart of wheat you can barely live off of. And it takes, what this is describing is it would take your whole day's wage for something you can barely live off, that one person could barely live off of. One commentator that I read said this would be like an 800% price increase of that day. So for us, it'd be like the voice being like $25 for a gallon of milk and $50 for a number one at Chick-fil-A, which would be devastating to me. But got to get the honey roasted barbecue. It's a secret, everyone. Catch on. Um, But did you see the second thing that it says? Do not harm the oil and wine. The, this, the things that are luxurious and enjoyable, oil and wine, don't touch that. Jack up the prices on the other stuff. Like, take advantage of the people who are really in need, but make sure you protect the stuff that's going to make you feel good. And is that not what we do? that we push the needy to the margins for the sake of our own luxuries. Our sin disintegrates us. And finally, death. The fourth seal, death, is the ultimate thing that disintegrates us from one another because it robs people from the ones that they love. And it's so broken and awful. And we try to ignore it. We try to ignore death. We lock our elderly away and try to forget about them in nursing homes. And we, 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 people have stopped, for the most part, having open casket funerals because we don't like to even see death. We just want to get death out of our consciousness. And the reality is that we can't avoid it. And with each of these four seals, you hear this voice saying, Come, 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 come. And then the fifth seal is opened, and essentially the same thing is said. Lord, come. The fifth seal is the voice of the martyrs crying out, God, we are wait- like, what are you doing? Save us, Lord. And why hasn't he come yet? Look at verse 11. God tells them, he, he gives them a white robe. And he tells them to rest a little longer. And the reason he tells them to rest is so that the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. What I want you to see is that the reason God says for them to wait is because God is patient. Because God wants more people to avoid the calamity, to be saved, to come into his family. And how is that going to happen? How do people come to know him? And this is the final point that I want you to see that what, the, what suffering does. Is our, a Christian suffering is the way that God often uses to reach the lost. Like what we kind of prefer is that our life, is that we would just be awesome. And that like by the sheer awesomeness of our awesomeness, that people would just be drawn to like, what is it that you have? Tell me like, 
tell me your secret. And then you can be like, Jesus, boom, you know, and like, that's how, you, that's, that's how you're going to lead someone to the good news. But throughout Christian history, the way that people have come to know the Lord is through the suffering of his people. A couple examples. First, it was, there were so many people being martyred in the first century and the second century in Rome. And what Rome didn't understand is why, we're killing these people and the, the, their religion is growing like wildfire and we can't stop it. Like, what is going on? What do they have and what do they believe that's like making them, that's, that's, their religion is still growing and we're killing them, we're burning them. Listen to what happened to a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was actually a disciple of John, the guy who wrote Revelation. And Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna, one of the churches to whom this book is addressed. And Polycarp, when he was a feeble 86-year-old man in the year 160 AD, was arrested by the Roman proconsul and brought to the stadium and tied to wood. And the proconsul urged him, Reproach Christ, and I will set you free. If you don't, you'll be burned. And Polycarp said this, 86 years have I served him. He has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and savior? And so then, instead of cursing the ones who are about to kill him, he prayed these words out loud. Lord, sovereign God, I thank you that you have deemed me worthy of this moment. For this I bless and glorify you. Amen. And then they burned him. And the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the early church. People listened to them because they suffered. Rodney Stark, who's a sociologist, he wrote the book, The Rise of Christianity. He was trying to understand, like, why did this social phenomenon happen? Why did it grow like this? He said this, in 165, five years after Polycarp, During the reign of Marcus Aurelius, there was an outbreak of sickness. They think it was probably the first case in the West of smallpox. And about a third to a fourth of the entire Roman population died. And all of the well-to-do and the ones who could afford to go somewhere else, they moved and they got out of the cities because people were dying. Marcus Aurelius himself died from this plague. But there was a group of people during that plague, who instead of leaving the cities, were going into the cities. It was the Christians. They were going there, and they were ministering to, and serving, and loving, and tending to the sick, and becoming sick themselves, and dying with the sick. And they're suffering. Here's the thing. What they did is they moved towards Polycarp, the early Christians during the plague, they moved towards the wake that those four horsemen left behind them. They moved towards the broken. They moved towards the destitute. They moved towards them because they knew that that's what they were. That when they didn't deserve it, that God moved towards them. A Christian is not someone who has it all together. 
A Christian is not someone who God is like deemed better than another person because they, they're really moral and good. A Christian is someone for whom God in his grace has gone to and pursued and loved, not because they deserved it. So secondly, I want you to see God's promise. And this will be a shorter point. But I want you to see the promise of what he will do to evil. Look at the sixth seal. It's a depiction of God. He is going to dissolve what disintegrates us. He's going to dissolve what what disintegrates us and solve everything by reintegrating us. The sixth seal is a depiction of God judging all that's wrong in the world. Like, whatever's been wronged, the wrong that's been done to you will be judged. The wrong that you've seen happen in this world, God is going to do something about it because he's good. In verse 17... You see, all these powerful and rich, they cry out. Everyone cries out, who can stand? And for the sake of time, I didn't print off chapter 7 because this is a long chunk. But the very next thing that you see, because did you notice that there was a one-chapter gap between the opening of the sixth seal and the seventh seal? And that chapter is a window into the answer to that question, who can stand? Chapter 6 closes with this question, who can stand? And listen to chapter 7, 9 through 10. It's John seeing the redeemed, the ones who can stand. After this, I looked and behold, this is chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see the picture here? God is, he is dissolving our, the disintegration of sin and solving things by reintegrating. Did you hear the picture? I have the, yeah, there's, there it is right there. Reintegration. Every tribe and tongue and nation depicted here. Africans and Italians and Greeks and Americans. What was that? Um, They're all, whatever that thing is, they're all integrated. And I also want you to see how big the grace is. How many people are in a great multitude of people that he can't even count. All throughout, it's funny, I, was, I noticed this. In chapter 6, 7, and 8, he's counting stuff all the time. He's saying numbers. You get lots of different numbers. And then he sees all the people that are in heaven, all the people that God has shown grace to, and he's just like, I can't even count. It's innumerable. It's how big his grace is. He doesn't, he doesn't clutch it and hold on to it and just and hide it for only a few. It's for so many. It's big grace. For all kinds of people. And man, 
That's what we want to preach. And honestly, that's what I hope that we see. I hope you see that at RUF. And I hope that we can express that to each other. I hope that RUF can more and more be a place where when someone walks in, that they actually get a taste, like they get a taste of that grace from somebody who claims to believe it. I pray, I pray that, that God would actually begin doing that with RUF, even in the way that someone would walk in and that what's depicted in Revelation 7 of every tribe and tongue and nation being present, that that might begin to be present here. Not just for diversity for the sake of diversity, but diversity for the sake of the kingdom. That it's a depiction of God's kingdom. And we want people to taste his kingdom. Because he's good. How does he give this grace? And the secret to that is what we read last week. The one who's opening the seals. The lamb who was slain. See, the good news of the gospel is that the judge who is depicted in Revelation 6, he became the judged. The judge becomes the judged. The lion becomes the lamb. The one who is judge falls under his own judgment to save those who deserved it. He did that on the cross. I texted my mom this morning about Mr. Hampton because I was thinking about him. And I remember, y'all, I grew up in this like tiny little, like a tiny town, tiny church. We would walk to church on Sundays. Very quaint. Um, And we would have an ice cream social in the summertime. And Mr. Hampton, cute, he's probably like like dripping wet, 120 pounds, like tenor in the, in the choir, Mr. Hampton would always get up and he would sing a solo. And I texted my mom, I was like, what was the name of that song he used to always sing? And she said it was called The Holy City. And I looked it up and I just couldn't, like, it's the book of Revelation. Think about this man who had seen so much brokenness and who had, who had mourned for what he saw happen to the Jews in that camp. And he sings this song called The Holy City. He would sing it every year. And I want to re- I'm going to read you the words. And when you hear Jerusalem, you're going to, we're going to pick up on Jerusalem later, but J- Jerusalem, is, is it the old Jerusalem or the new Jerusalem? And I would say yes. Like God is for Israel, but he also has brought all people into Israel. His church, he's brought into Israel, to his people. And listen to this song. Last night I lay a-sleeping. There came a dream so fair, I stood in old Jerusalem beside the temple there. Heard the children singing, and ever as they sang, methought the voice of angels from heaven in answer rang. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, lift up your gates and sing. Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to your king. And then methought my dream was changed. The streets no longer rang. Hushed were the glad Hosannas the little children sang. The sun grew dark with mystery. The morn was cold and chill. As the shadow of a cross arose upon a lonely hill. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, hark how the angels sing. Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to your king. And once again the scene was changed. This is your hope. Because because of the cross on the lonely hill. And once again the scene was changed. New earth there seemed to be. I saw the holy city besides the tideless sea. The light of God was on its streets, the gates were open wide, and all who would might enter 
and no one was denied. No need of moon or stars by night or sun to shine by day. It was the new Jerusalem that would not pass away. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, sing for the night is over. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna forevermore. Jesus has made a way for everything to be right. And so the seventh seal is that heaven is silent. And the only thing that's heard in that silent room is the prayers of the saints. And God is listening. And no matter your suffering, no matter what you're going through, he hasn't forgotten you, and you can call out to him because he's made a way. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the blessing of it. Thank you for the image that you've given us of the seals being opened, of things being made right, even when it's hard to understand. Um, I pray that you would dig that truth deep into our hearts, that you would help us to believe that you are gracious and that you've done something about the brokenness in this world and that you actually call us into participating in bringing healing and that you do that oftentimes through our suffering. So we pray that you give us courage, um, that you would fill us with your love, and that we might love others with the overflow of that love. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.